He's Christian. He's Jimmer. This is two PTs and a bag of chips. Today we discuss shoulder labrum, slap tear-ish, mostly, and we will be reviewing the Quilo fried egg. Huevo frito. With a side of Spanish ham, Hamani Berco Quilo chips. So we've already done that review. That is uh, episode 26, the adhesive capsulitis frozen shoulder. So check that out as well if you need the review on that one. I see what you did there. We're doing the shoulder and we're having Quilo potato chips. That was, that's brilliant. That was more accidental. I only realized that Shh. just now. No. You should take credit for that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thought it all out. Brilliant. In the future, don't hold me to my own standards. No. I will. Slap tear. Yeah. So start with slap tear and then just work our way back. Well, I think we should start with what the labrum is. Because you were going to talk about that at the end of the last episode. Oh, that's right. Someone yeah. had told you something about how. Yeah, I learned it from Dr. Parker. The labrum it can be seen as a kind of like a gasket or a seal for the uh, shoulder joint. The joint is extremely. The, the socket is extremely shallow, the glenoid. So in order for you to create some stability for a round object sitting on a saucer tipped on its edge at an 80 degree angle, um, you have the labor, just like a ring, a cartilage ring or a gasket that helps a seat. Yeah, I mean, a good oh, reference for the glenohumeral joint, which are the bony portions, is essentially a golf tee and a golf ball. So the humerus, a, which is the ball, yeah, at a 90 degree tipped angle, on its yeah. side. So good luck trying to balance a golf ball on that. Well, that makes muscle function really, really important to shoulder stability and shoulder control. And that is really important anytime you have some disruption to your shoulder labrum. Yes, because you can't really train the passive structures that provide stability, right? So the joint capsule or the ligaments, or in this case, the labrum. Yeah. So when we see labrum issues, we tend to talk mostly about what's called a slap tear, and that's an acronym for superior labrum anterior posterior, so SLAP. And that is an indication of the top of the labrum, which is where the long head of the biceps actually comes in and attaches, and you'll start to see this pull away from the glenoid, that bony portion. And this can be quite uncomfortable, it can also not be an issue at all. So MRI and imaging is nice, but it doesn't tell you if someone's hurting or if they're limited or anything along those lines. Right. And, that's, and that refers back to last week's episode, right, about, or the, the week before that, mm -hmm. about, um, about imaging. But, yeah, so the, the confirmation can be made by injecting the glenohumeral joint with a um, contrast fluid. If the contrast fluid leaks out, that means there's a disruption which would, be positive for a slap tear. But again, that could not be why, or could, that could not necessarily be the reason why you're having symptoms. Although, labrum tear symptoms are pretty pretty um, self-explanatory. They're pretty different from any other rotator yeah. of issues. Yeah, there's, there's generally not a weakness associated. It's more of a pain inhibition at times, and it, it's positional or related to a specific movement or activity in some way. And a lot of times it can be noisy as well. Yeah, there's usually some clicking or probably just clicking is the best, biggest one. Clunking, since we do a clunk test. We do a clunk test, yeah. 
And that's more of a visual clunk than an audible clunk. True, like more of a shift. Then it yeah. should be called the shift test. Because we have that as well. We'll talk about those. You also have a sulcus sign. Because right? you need a sulcus. I like that. Sulcus which, sign. Which we don't talk about very no. often with anything else. Apprehension test. Apprehension's a big one. So the big causes of labrum tears are traumatic dislocations or any dislocation really and then also uh, participation in overhead sports so that brings us back to uh, baseball throwing tennis volleyball volleyball's a big one with us yeah and uh and i mean trauma is is usually the one that results in more acute labrum pathology overhead sports is more of a repetitive issue and so you may have symptoms in baseball they sometimes will give you a diagnosis of, of dead arm or something not very scientific at all and that can be an indication of a, of a flare-up of a prior issue or a new just repetitive overuse discomfort kind of a thing there yeah i've actually seen that happen in several volleyball players that i've worked with where they hit a ball as hard as they could and their arm immediately went dead the um, the dead part is usually an irritation of the auxiliary nerve, where uh, where the ball kind of drops down in the socket a little bit too much and pinches that nerve, um, which could give you the tingling of the dead feeling. Yeah, and that nerve will come into play often with the symptom pattern. There's usually a lot of posterior shoulder discomfort with the labrum, and that's resulting from irritation to the axillary nerve, and that's the referral pattern it'll give you goes right into either the deltoid or, or into a... There's also pain in the long... Terry's minor. Terry's minor. Terry's minor. That's the one we're talking about. There's also usually pain associated with the uh, long head of the biceps yeah. for obvious reasons. So and that's because of its attachment uh, into the labrum. And so the bicep sits right in the front of the shoulder. If it's an unstable joint, that biceps tends to get overworked as well as physically bumped into repetitively. And those two will result in that pretty consistent biceps discomfort but we'll see that with a rotator cuff tear as well or anything that reduces stability in the shoulder biceps yep. tenderness so that by itself isn't very diagnostic of a slap tear or labrum issue at all correct i just figured i pointed out yeah no i think that's a great i'm, I'm having a hard time concentrating because it smells like fried egg i know these <laughs> chips are really pretty <laughs> Pretty on point with their flavoring. <laughs> Treatment-wise, it's a lot of strengthening. So rotator cuff and periscapular strengthening, working on mechanics. Uh, if that fails, surgery is really effective almost every time. Uh, the recovery for that is six, nine months for return to sport, depending on age and demands of sport. Yeah, and that's the old age. The old age. The age old, mm -hmm. somebody is ready to return to sport, um, or they think they're ready to return to sport a lot sooner than they are, because pain symptoms are gone and, and stability is improved. But mechanically, we're usually running into problems that could eventually lead to other shoulder issues. So it's important to have you know, that last five degrees of lateral rotation or proper inferior glide in the joint. So mechanically, everything has to work. 100% again before we send you out to start repetitively beating up on it again. Some sports where 
it's also difficult to like football or any tackling sport, rugby maybe, where you get just a lot of physical trauma to it. That can be another challenging position for it. Uh, but the repetitive overhead throwing is really tough. So if you play first base, it might be a lot easier to come back to baseball than if you're a, a pitcher right off the bat sort of a situation. Or in volleyball, if you're a, a libero, you may be able to, to start sooner than if you're an outside hitter or a, a middle blocker or something along those lines. It just depends on the demands related to your activity. Who was the quarterback that dislocated his shoulder or tore his labrum twice while he was throwing? I think it was Matt Stafford a couple years back. He dislocated his shoulder mid-game. They put it in, threw it threw it out without any – first time was and traumatic I'm, and threw it out. I think I'm thinking about the dude who had the butt fumble. Oh, Mark Sanchez? Yeah. He was – during his throwing motion, he got his arm blocked, and that, I think, resulted in a slap tear. Yeah. I'm not sure. Anyway. Yeah, if those things happen – now, special test-wise, it's it's usually pretty easy to tell. I mean, there's apprehension relocation, which is where we try to essentially put your arm into a dislocated-like position, and if that's really uh, awkward and uncomfortable, and then if we can relocate it, so if we add anterior pressure to the joint and it feels fine, that's a pretty good indication that there's something going on. With a labrum, there's a load and shift, which is essentially tells us if the shoulder, the glenohumeral joint's moving too much. Uh, sometimes we just see someone who's got increased mobility or and that happens from time to time and so those aren't always perfect. The sulcus sign is essentially pulling the shoulder out of place uh, without really dislocating it and so there's increased distance between the acromion and the humerus. The crank test is kind of what it sounds like. You sort of crank on it. If it hurts, you got a pretty darn good idea. And the last one is O'Brien's test, which is a combination test. So you can see for AC joint problems as well as for slap tear issues. The hard part with this is if it's an acute shoulder discomfort, almost everything hurts all the time. So, again, you have a little bit of diagnosing there to do. But And then history taken becomes important, right? What, what was the mechanism of injury? Yeah. What was What is their, um, their repeti- repetition? Repetitive? Mm-hmm. That's a hard word. Yeah, that's hard. Um, movement been like over the over the previous years? Is there any underlying history of previous shoulder discomfort? So that becomes a lot more telling in putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. Uh, all in all, it's most probably a, a lot of people that we see initially with the diagnosis of a labrum tear or, or slap tear uh, do really well with physical therapy and, and strengthening. Every once in a while, someone has surgery, but that's not as common, I don't think, as much anymore. No, no, absolutely not. And it has to do with the size of the tear, obviously, right? Yeah. So when they diagnose you, um, and this is this is hard to do off of imaging. This is usually not until they um, open your shoulder up and repair it. They use the um, the hands of the clock. So the tear could be from 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock, which would be relatively small, or it could be from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock, which would be quite a bit bigger. Um, and based upon that, they have to place more or less anchors. But I would say in general, you know, 90% of the people that we see do fine with um, with strengthening um, in order to stabilize that shoulder. Yeah. Can we have the fry deck thing now? Cause yeah. <laughs> I'm dripping. Trivia. Oh, we'll do trivia first. Yes. Just to mess with you. Yeah. yeah. Last Fresh. week's question. How many minutes of playtime are there in an average baseball game? 
So an average game lasts three hours and five minutes. Of that, there is 18 minutes of what is determined to be play time. Yeah, so, so that's three hours of just useless time. Did you eat yeah. popcorn and nuts and whatever else you eat at a baseball game? So I added a link to a pretty interesting article relating specifically to it. Some guy sat there and broke down how many minutes somebody paces around and how many minutes somebody messes with their gloves in between pitches and compared it to games in the, I think, 80s and 50s. And the biggest difference in total length of time now is time between pitches. So batters are just standing around waiting. Pitchers are kind of standing around waiting. And that equates to about just... I think just over 30 minutes a game, just kind of standing around doing nothing. So they need to do what they yeah. did in tennis this year is start um, start the clock, put you on the clock. So there's officially a rule that should be 20 seconds from the time the pitcher gets, catches the ball to, to releases the ball, and it has not been enforced at any point in time ever. So, eh. I could really care less. Eh. I haven't been to a baseball game in a while. Five years or so. So this week's question, what is the most widely eaten fish in the world? Not in the U.S. In Not the, the U.S. World. Yeah, the U.S. surprisingly doesn't contribute much to this. No. So, so think outside the traditional fish aisle, traditional fish here. Very much a European fish. It's very, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Without, without trying to give it away. You can edit that out if you want. There's a lot of fish out there, so. Lots and lots of fish. Chip time. Woohoo! So we got the fried egg. Chip to our ratio on this bad boy came in just a touch over 40%, actually. So they're pretty low in the bag. Yeah. Well, they got to keep that fried egg yeah. air in there. Good, good looking chip. We've had Quilos before. The Spanish ham did incredibly well with our ratings. So we have high expectations here. Go Spain. Down the hatch. One of the crunchy one. <laughs> it tastes like egg. Yeah. Oh. I wonder if it's just fried egg. There's probably no potato in here. There's no you don't think? No. I mean, there's it's definitely potato. It, that's a distinct fried egg That's flavor. impressive. It tastes like the white of an egg. Not getting a lot of yolk here, but. No. I'm liking it, but I like fried egg. I like fried eggs, too. I wonder if it goes with uh, some ham. I bet it will. Uh, the chips are thin but crunchy. There's a, I mean, a nice amount of salt, I wouldn't say. I mean, the, the right amount for a fried egg. Yeah, it's not over overbearing at all. Mm. If you add the two. That's really, I mean, the hamani berico is just a premium yeah. chip. <laughs> it's so just so good. I'm going to add the two. It's going to be super crunchy. This is a double stack here. I'm going to also double stack it. Ham and eggs. Yeah. How can you go wrong with that? You can't. I mean, it's really good. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I'm you can these for breakfast. What did you have for breakfast, Maura? Potatoes, eggs, and ham. It was really good. <laughs> All in one convenient package. Quick, handheld package. I'm, I'm going three thumbs. You're giving it a three. Uh, it's definitely a solid two. I mean, the combined is a three. Man, that's great. Yeah, I'm, even the fried egg for me is a three. That, that fried is egg, probably one of my one of the best ones that we've had so far, other than the obvious. But this is yeah, well done. So it's, it's, Quilo's crushing it again in the chip game here. Like in the U.S., they try to come up with all these odd, like like bacon and and, and waffles. Yeah, but then or there's no bacon flavors. Or, yeah, but 
Fried egg, brilliant. Solid. Very solid. Well done. Thanks, Steve. Yes, thank you again, Steve Cavisto. We really appreciate you dropping these off. Now, we didn't mention that before, but he's, he's keeping us rich in chips. He's, he's done. Thank you very he's, much. He's had some good ones. Very good ones. Uh, well, thank you for listening today. Next week, we're going to cover Achilles tendonitis. We are going to review a Chio sweet chili and red pepper. Kind of have to do this one out of order. It came hand-delivered from Europe and opened in the process, so we need to get to it sooner rather than later, unfortunately. If you like the show, tell a friend, follow, review, subscribe. If you're looking for more information about this topic, follow us on Instagram and Twitter throughout the week. Uh, you can also go back and check out all of our old posts on other stuff if you want. Uh, for more information on rebound therapy, check out our website, reboundclinic.com. If you have any questions, concerns about the quality of the show, please address these to Christian. Thank you. Christian at reboundclinic.com. That's true. That's it. Don't come to me. Uh, he's Jimmer. I'm Christian. Thanks for listening.